Lord, sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen to this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your Spirit that guides us into all truth. Father, if someone here has not experienced salvation, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to their hearts today. Today will be the day of their salvation. Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you, Lord, I pray that you would teach us today, impact our lives, that your spirit would use Ben to teach us and to guide us, and that your spirit would convict us, would encourage us, and help us to impact our families, to impact others in, in our workplaces. And then, Lord, that we would be helpful to this world to make disciples of all people groups. Lord, we ask all these things in your amazing son's name and through the power of your spirit. And everybody said, thanks. You may be seated. Good morning, Fellowship Church. Thank you all for coming here today. I'm grateful to get a chance to speak to you. My name is Ben Fest. I've had the privilege and honor of serving as an elder here at Fellowship Church since I think 2019. And um, it's my first time to get to speak with you. I, I pray that God would open all of our hearts to hear His Word. Before we get started, however, I want to give a big thank you to all of our regular pastors, staff, ministry leaders who put together the service every Sunday, organize mission trips, and do all the things that, that bring this church together to serve the kingdom of God week in and week out. They do a great job. I'm clapping too close to the mic. Um, so the theme I'm going to attempt to articulate to you this morning is living prayerfully, keeping in step with the Spirit. And if you'd like to mark your Bibles, I'm going to go through Galatians 5, 16 through 25, and also 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 19. I don't know where everyone is on their journey of faith. This message is aimed primarily, I guess, at those who have already committed their lives to Christ. But if you haven't, there's something here for you also. Because it's meant to help us to see how Christians are supposed to live their lives after having received 
the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we all fail to live up to Jesus Christ our Lord, but part of the process of sanctification is recognizing where we're deficient and asking for the grace of God to help us. Both of those letters to the Galatians are Paul writing to young churches. Galatians may have been around 80, 48, and maybe to 50. There's a little range that we think it was written in. And then about a year later, the Thessalonians, who all needed practical advice about how to live now that they've come to accept Jesus as their Lord. My wife is very smart, and she read through my notes and told me I should start the sermon out by being very explicit with you about the thesis. So say what I'm going to say. Then we'll walk through how the Spirit led me to this message, and at the end I'll close out in a summary. So here's the sermon in a nutshell. According to passages like Ephesians 1.13, which says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verses like this teach us that believers have the power of the Spirit of God living within us, and it's only by His power that we're going to overcome the desires of the flesh and bear fruit. Not only in our own lives, right? This isn't an Eastern religion. We're not Zen Buddhists. In our communities as well for the kingdom of God. The Spirit does the heavy lifting. Our part is to earnestly seek God through prayer and refrain from quenching the Spirit. So that's it. When Pastor Chris first asked me to consider preaching on prayer. I was a bit hesitant. Uh, I don't think I have any greater expertise than many people in this room on what prayer is. Lots of you are excellent prayer warriors. They asked me to pray about it, and I thought I could do at least that much. So I prayed. I started to consider various passages. There's all these great passages in your Bible of godly men and women praying, Jesus praying in Gethsemane. But it was when I got convicted by a verse, a very short verse, that I knew what I needed to speak to you all about today because the Spirit walked me through that conviction. I came across 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Who does that? No, don't tell me. I, I don't. Uh, I, I failed to live up to this call. And it is a command. You can look at the Greek. The underlying Greek is just two words. It's adialeptos proseukesthe. That second word, proseukesthe. Y'all pray. It's an imperative. It's in the imperative conjugation. So we're told to do that, to pray all the time without ceasing. Having been convicted, I thought, well, I better dig into Scripture and see if I understand it correctly. I thought, let me try and define prayer more clearly so that I mean, if we're being honest, I thought maybe I'd get a definition that would help me to feel better, that I would realize I'm actually doing this all the time already and not failing what Scripture tells me to do. That's not the case. The word there for to pray is from proseukomai, and in the Strong's Concordance, it basically is to wish or to pray. That's not quite enough for our definition today. So I dug around, looked at the different types of prayer. Last week, Neth was able to give us some ways we can think about our prayer life. And then I came across a quote from J.I. Packer in his concise handbook of theology. And I liked what he said. He said, God made us and has redeemed us for fellowship with himself. And that is what prayer is. What I like about this is fellowship with God. So it brings in that relational aspect. 
So I'm going to give us a working definition of prayer for the purposes of our sermon today. You can enrich it in any way you like as, as we go out. But I'm going to say to pray is to communicate intentionally and attentively with God. Intention. What our thoughts are about. The aboutness. Attention. The focus and the level of volume. How we got it turned up. Communication is easy. It's just making something common between two parties. So we might say that prayer happens when we make something common between ourselves and our maker. One qualification, we mean it in a positive sense. There are mean-spirited atheists who could say some nasty things to God. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. So we're told to pray without ceasing, communicate with God intentionally and attentively all the time. When are some of the times we typically pray? Maybe in the morning when you wake up, start your day, bedtime, before meal to thank God. When we're here at church, this is a good praying church, we spend time in prayer. What about when you're anxious or afraid, somebody's sick, they need prayers, or you really need something from God? I don't know about you, but I spend a lot more time in prayer when I'm anxious or scared and need something from God than when I've got it made in the shade, drinking lemonade. So I think that's a shame. Petitions and supplications are a type of prayer. They're not the only kind of prayer. In Matthew 7, 7, we're told to ask, seek, and knock. But I think all too often we fall into the habit of thinking of prayer time as a chance to ask God for all the things we want for ourselves. Last week, Neth called it thinking God like a vending machine. We can and we should go to God with our petitions, but the greatest thing we could ever receive from God is God himself, the fount of all goodness. So it would be a mistake to use all of our time with God selfishly asking for worldly goods from the only one who is good. And consider, if prayer is communicating intentionally and attentively with God, I'm going to throw proper worship in as a species of prayer. I'm not trying to be controversial, but if you're really taking those words to God, you are communicating that praise and adoration to God, like in the Psalms, many of which are, if not all of which, are sung prayers, some of them explicitly stating that, then I think that can be considered a type of prayer. And I think reading your Bible with your heart open to really receive what the Spirit is teaching you through that Scripture and allowing God to speak to you can be a type of prayer. Whatever it's doing, if you're communicating with God, I'm going to call it prayer. It's a two-way street. We can talk to him, and he can talk to us. I'm not saying you should spend all your time. I don't think you should cut out your dialogue with time, time with God to go listen to Christian rock. But I, but I do think when you're facing practical questions like Paul's going to address in Galatians and Thessalonians and, and in our lives, we're going to need to bring all our tools to bear. So in preparation for the sermon... I read a little book uh, called Prayer, Communing with God and Everything, Collected Insights from A.W. Tozer. And Tozer makes this distinction that I think might be useful for us. When we're at church, it's much easier to be prayerful. Sacred time. We worship. We read the Word. We tend to strive to be on our best behavior, right? Really 
trying to keep up with that WWJD, finding what the Spirit's moving in our relationships, really making an effort to live up to our calling in Jesus Christ because it is sacred time. We've set it apart for God. We've made it holy for God. But there's secular time. Most other times, whether we're at home or out with friends, even at work, for a lot of us, fall into secular time. Is it just me, or does sinning come a lot more easily outside of church and church gatherings, outside of those times we've set apart for God? I mean, can you imagine popping open a beer and getting drunk in the sermon? Talking about the beautiful lady that just walked in with your pew mate, or turning on your phone and watching some violent, maybe pornographic film during the reading of Scripture? I don't, I don't think so. We reserve those kinds of activities for our secular time. And I don't know about you, but if you break up your hours in the week, are you spending more of your time pursuing secular or sacred time? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all secular pursuits are sinful. But all sinful pursuits are certainly secular. Is this sacred-secular divide in our time legitimate for a Christian? I'm going to say that it's not. Take a look at these passages from 1 Corinthians. In 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells within you? 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Believers in Christ Jesus, then, are the walking, talking temples of God. The Spirit dwells within us. That means there's no time when we're apart from God. All our time is church time, is sacred time. Don't you think we should act like it? I fall far short. I'm not accusing you all. Back to the verse that convicted me in the first place. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 what reasons or what excuses might we give for not following this command? What keeps us from living on sacred time at all times by being in communication with God without ceasing? He's right here in our hearts. I put it to you that one of the biggest, if not the biggest barrier to constant communication with God is we're distracted. We're distracted by, as Paul puts it, works of the flesh. And he's going to talk about those in our passage from Galatians 5. But I think there's another big issue, at least for me, it's other people. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just being honest. Jesus said the second of the two greatest commandments is to love my neighbor as myself. But I get irritated sometimes. And the works of the flesh bubble up and take over. But when you think about it, my failure... When I'm irritated with somebody else, it's a failure to love my neighbor as myself. And what the problem really boils down to is directly related to my walk with God. Consider what John writes in 1 John 4, 7 through 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because... God is love. So I'm going to say once again, the root of the problem 
whether it's other people or works of the flesh, lies with me and my relationship with God. It's not the other person I'm irritated with. And that second issue, that uh, loving my neighbor as myself, is covered, I think, by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. And he gives practical advice for their interpersonal relations. See, I'm convinced that the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the Thessalonians are directly related. In Galatians 5, Paul teaches believers about the power of the Spirit within them that allows them to resist the works of the flesh and bear fruit of the Spirit in their personal lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, he teaches believers how these fruits of the Spirit should play out practically in their communities. Galatians 5, 16-25 reflects on God's inner ordering of a person by the power of the Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-19 reflects on the working out of the fruits of the Spirit in that person's relationship with others. Turn with me now, please, to Galatians 5. We're going to start in verses 5, 16 through 18. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I'm convinced that Paul's directive to walk by the Spirit can be directly related to his command to pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing means consciously and actively tapping into that communion with God who's ever accessible to us through the Spirit in us. You can't walk with or be led by anybody without paying attention to what they're doing. And we certainly can't walk by the Spirit without intentionally paying attention to His presence in our lives and the world around us. But Paul's teaching, there's this other voice calling out for our attention as well. The desires of our flesh. And the flesh calls loudly. It can be hard to hear the still small voice of God over the howling of our appetites. Nevertheless, that's what we're meant to do. We're called to actively oppose the desires of the flesh, because they're against the Spirit. How do we do that? We pray without ceasing. Prayer is our means to turn to God for the help of the Spirit in this war against the flesh. I'm convinced the key to keeping in step with the Spirit, allowing us to resist the works of the flesh and bear fruit, is to constantly communicate intentionally and attentively with God it takes a conscious effort on our part right, to cooperate with that power of the Spirit and live up to our calling, the true freedom that Christ purchased for us on the cross. I'm going to say that's prayer. That's the kind of prayer we're looking for. Think about it. What would change about your daily routine if you were constantly in such a state of prayer? If it's easier for you, imagine Jesus is with you. Jesus is sitting there with you. Would it change your driving behavior and your commute? to and from work, mine would change. Would you still gossip or trash talk with your friends if Jesus is in the circle, part of the conversation with you? It'd be a lot harder to do that. What about drinking too much alcohol after work? Jesus is there, you might hesitate. The media you, you're consuming, if Jesus is on the couch with you, I bet you're not going to choose Skinamax. These are all forms of desires, works of the flesh, that Paul's going to list next. 
Look with me at Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a tough list. I'm convicted by quite a few of those things on that list. I know they're wrong. They separate me from God, but I'm very susceptible to them, you might say. You ever fallen prey to a fit of anger? Who's let that spill over to the ones they love most? You ever lash out at your kids or your spouse? I have. You ever feel envy? You think you deserve or want the thing that somebody else has? Friday night sorcery. Now that's a joke. Um, <laughs> but what about this one? Have you ever contributed to dissension or division amongst others? Anyone who's had any conversation with me about theological matters, and it could be a trivial thing, knows that I'm highly susceptible to dissension and division. Maybe it's the same for you, but about political or social issues of our day. Notice all these works of the flesh are interpersonal. They would have a tendency to tear relationships asunder. Sexual immorality objectifies the other. It dehumanizes them, makes them an object for our use. Idolatry tears you away from the one true God. Strife, rivalries, and anger, well, these all cause you to murder your brother or your sister in your heart. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 to 22. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's our Lord Jesus. He didn't take the law down a notch. He kicked it up. But let's look what he says next, what Paul says next in Galatians 5, 22 to 25. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'd like more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And notice those also, they're, they're interpersonal. Bearing those kinds of fruits would have a tendency to strengthen relationships, to build community rather than tear them apart. And we're going to talk about that in a moment when we look at 1 Thessalonians 5. But first, I want to hone in on verse 25, Galatians 5, 25. Paul reiterates we should live by the Spirit and we should keep in step with the Spirit. From what we've been talking about today, how do we do that, church? We turn to Him in prayer. At all times, we follow the exhortation of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Because if we were to communicate with God intentionally and unintentionally, 
attentively, without ceasing, and to constantly be making that conscious effort to keep in step with the Spirit, we would bear fruit in our lives. And the harvest that we produce would overflow into our communities. We're going to talk about that next. If you'll turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 19. So we're going to look for the fruit of the Spirit behind Paul's words to the Thessalonians. As we look at verses 12 through 13, which say, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. When we're keeping in step with the Spirit, according to Paul here, we are not only able to receive admonishment from brothers and sisters in Christ, but we can love them for it. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to say so is self-control. And I see that here. My knee-jerk reaction when somebody admonishes me is to excuse, justify, get angry, maybe even fight about it. But that's a prompt. That is a work of the flesh. We feel that emotion. That's when we turn to God. That's when we turn to Scripture. That's when we remember our calling. And it says we're going to be at peace. We're going to love them. Receiving difficult truths in love and peace is a godly thing. It can be very hard to receive criticism. But sometimes the greatest thing somebody can do for you is to speak truth into your life when you're off track. And the Greek word there for admonish is uh, nuthateo. It literally means to put the mind in place. So by the grace of the Spirit, we can love someone who puts our mind in place. And this is old wisdom. You can find it in Proverbs 9.8. It says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Let's be wise in the Lord. Looking next at verse 14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So here Paul tells the Thessalonians, and by extension, us, to admonish the idle. That's that same word, that, that, that admonish, nuthateo, where to put their minds in place. But he's not telling us to do it in the usual way. How do you normally react if you've got a shared work task with somebody and they are not pulling their weight? You lash out, you get angry or irritated, speak harsh words to them or about them. That's not the way. We're, we're to be patient with them all. If we're living prayerfully and walking by the Spirit, we're able to overcome such fleshly emotions, but only by His power. We're also told in this very same verse, in the same sentence, that we're to encourage the faint-hearted. There's an interesting Greek word for faint-hearted there. It's oligotsukos. Uh, it's a compound word. Oligos, smaller, little, sukos, soul. So you're dealing with somebody with a small soul. You might say it's somebody whose identity in Christ is underdeveloped. You're never going to help them to develop a Christ-like identity by lashing out at them. No, we have to walk by the Spirit, provide them an example to imitate, help them develop the Spirit given them by God. 
So to be explicit, some of the fruits of the Spirit that I see in verse 14 are kindness, gentleness, and patience. It's a hallmark of gentleness to encourage and help the weak. It's even a kindness to admonish the idle insofar as it puts them back on the right path. But we've got to do so while being patient with them all. And if these behaviors don't come easily, we need to be listening for the works of the flesh, pray without ceasing, and bear good fruit. Jumping to verse 15, it says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I don't know about you, but when somebody perpetrates evil against me, I have an instinct for payback. I, I, it's just what happened. All of our movies today teach us, right? Get your revenge. That's what the gratifying part of the movie is. Think about the Avengers, their very name. We're told not to avenge ourselves, and we love these Avengers. By tapping into the Spirit through intentional prayer, I can show self-control and show goodness even to the one who harms me. Those are two fruits of the Spirit. Showing goodness to someone who harms us, that's like Jesus. Remember what he said on the cross in Luke 22? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As he's being tortured to death. And I also want you to notice here that it teaches that we must seek to do good to everyone, not just to one another. See, God's goodness is directed to everyone through us by the power of the Spirit, which we access in prayer. And in being good to everyone, we can imitate our Lord. Jesus, again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, to 45, says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Just a couple verses later, he's going to say, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Only by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit within us. Look with me now at the last chunk. We're going to take it together. 16 through 19 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. So in that previous verse, we're told to do good to everyone, even to those who wrong us. And in this is conformity to the image of the Son of God. In conforming to the image of the Son of God, we can experience another fruit of the Spirit. Joy. It says here, rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. That's a tough one. I want to take a moment here and reflect with you on what exactly is being said here. What about when something terrible happens? Many people in this room are hurting now, have suffered tragedy in their lives, but we're being told to rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. So what do we mean by joy? Here's the thing. I think the joy we're talking about is experienced insofar as we're living in Christ. This isn't to be confused with a fleeting moment of happiness, a bite of a good cheeseburger, a sports team wins the game. Those moments come and go. Christ's joy came through the giving of himself to others in obedience to the Father. 
Just as God, as we saw before, always gives freely of himself to sustain us all. The author of the Hebrews was on to this. In Hebrews 12, 2, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So then this kind of spiritual joy comes to us when we live in Christ. Christ embodied obedient, self-sacrificial love. So we need to understand the joy then comes through self-sacrificial love, which in turn brings us nearer to God, who is love. Think of the joy of a mother caring for a baby infant, giving all the energy and beyond and food from her very body, night on end, night after night, or a father working his heart out for his family to provide a good home, keep them safe. It may seem counterintuitive to say that joy comes through self-abnegation, but I can testify that it's true. I know that many mothers, fathers, grandparents, sisters, brothers, even just charitable good workers can testify to this seeming paradox that when we give of ourselves, when we pour out the grace given to us, we receive joy. Why should this be? I think it's because these kinds of acts are evidences of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And in them, we're living as we were made to live, as image bearers of God. We can consider that as a follower of Jesus, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what, we have recourse to the fact, the historical fact, that you've been reconciled to God through the victory that has been won over death by the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. This is why even in moments of trial, we can say things with Paul, like he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So you see here, our joy is rooted in something God has already done for us. But it's also tied to our forward-looking faith in the full consummation of the kingdom of God. When God will make all wrongs right, he will wipe every tear from your eye. It doesn't say we won't suffer. It says rejoice in our sufferings. Joy through trials. See, our suffering is not wasted. God turns mourning to dancing. He makes evil into something good, just as Jesus' gruesome death led to the good of us being here today, exploring how we can live more like he did. we got to pray and seek God in our suffering to remind ourselves of such things. Look what Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5 about the way our suffering can produce something good. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, Pastor Chris loves James 1, 2 through 3. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, our grief and our suffering can be put to work for the kingdom of God. 
And through the Spirit, we can experience some joy in spite of, even when we do suffer. I want to look finally now at verse 17, which I kind of jumped over. It's the verse that convicted me in the first place. It says, pray without ceasing. I actually associate this with yet another fruit of the Spirit, one we haven't discussed yet. I tie it to faithfulness. Faithfulness comes from the Greek word pistis. And it can be translated faith or faithfulness, depending on your translation. We could do a whole sermon series on the rich meaning of faith, but I want to focus on one particular aspect of its meaning. Fidelity. To be faithful or to place your faith in someone is to be committed to that person. And in line with our discussion today, if we pray without ceasing, then we are being committed to and faithful to God by turning to Him at all times. Praying without ceasing is seeking Him continually by communicating with Him intentionally and attentively. And in doing so, we're taught that we have access to all the fruits of the Spirit. We're able to overcome the desires of our flesh. And I believe the only way for a broken and sinful human like me to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances is by the power of the Spirit. And fruits like these are vivifying, not only to ourselves, but to our communities. Real quickly, the last two clauses, we're told this is what God wills for those of us in Christ Jesus. And we're commanded not to quench the Spirit. That last turn of phrase. We got the, the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within us. Actively there, ready to offer us assistance in our war against the flesh. We just have to desist from our tendency to rebel against it. Okay. As my wife suggested, here's a brief summary of what I was thinking I was conveying to you today. Uh, premise one, the Spirit dwells within us, and it's our only means to overcome the desire of the flesh so we can bear fruit in our lives and in our communities. Premise two, we must intentionally and attentively communicate with God in order to be able to walk by, live by, keep in step with, be led by the Spirit in order to achieve that end. Conclusion, we must follow Paul's wise command, the Spirit's wise command, to pray without ceasing so that we do not quench the Spirit by the works of our flesh. I'm not saying this is easy. It's quite difficult, make no mistake. It's as difficult as jumping out of your own skin. The point isn't that if you memorize this little argument, all your problems are solved. We do live in a sinful, fallen world, and we all succumb to the works of our flesh. That's our default position if we're not vigilant. But what I'm telling you what Paul and the Holy Spirit are telling you is that through the Spirit, you have access to a power that's greater than that in the world. And the Scripture is commanding us to turn to that Spirit in prayer, not once a day, not twice a day, at all times. And what would it look like if we lived prayerfully, if we prayed without ceasing? It would look like fruits of the Spirit born out in people's lives, in their communities. It would look like the kingdom of heaven on earth. Our lives would look a bit more like Jesus' life, and that's something worth pursuing with all our hearts. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, let your Spirit please rain down upon us all. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the words of Scripture which encourage us, which show us the way that fruit can be born, that the kingdom of heaven on earth that you inaugurated with your ministry. 
can happen in our lives and in those around us until you're coming, until the full consummation. Lord, please empower us. Please let us have the presence of mind to turn to you in prayer when we feel those fleshly works of the flesh rising up within us. Help us to bear fruit. Let this church be a source of life-giving fruit through the power of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Wow. So good. First message in front of lots of people. Uh, Lord, really worked through you. Worked in my heart, too. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for your labor of love and labor in the word and communicating that to us. So today, as we just heard about what? Tonight, you have an opportunity uh, to join on the hill. And there's also a couple other opportunities throughout the week you'll see in your bulletins. Um, so we encourage you to do that. And a lot of those things, too, that, that you'd shared is, is done not individually, but is done in community. Those commands were, if you remember seeing it, it was like you all. We are not meant to do this individually or separately from the body. We are meant to do this together. And we need each other. Which brings me to one of our announcements for today. It's path groups. How many of you guys enjoy your path groups? Looking forward to getting them back. Uh-oh, Chad, we got some work to do. So path group, path stands, uh, an acrostic stands for plan, abide, thrive, and honor. And today, it's active right now for us to be able to be a part of path groups. You need them, and they need you. We have about 28 of them that are online now. You can go to, in your bulletin, you guys see a little uh, link, link tree there? You can scan that, and you can go there and look at the path groups. And then also, if uh, you don't have that, you want to go wait till you get home, um, one of the things we encourage you to do is pray about it. Then look through those groups. If you go to f-pc.org, and then in the little navigation menu, there will be ministries, and then under those ministries will be path groups. Click on that, and you'll see a list of 28 groups. And there's some available every day of the week. Um, so we really have no excuse uh, to be a part of a path group because we need them. We need you, and, and you need us, beautiful thing. Um, one of the one of the things that um, oh yeah, I was going to say on the website too. There are some that you can link. You click on that, which are when the Lord leads you to. And if you click on it and nothing happens, that just means to click on another because there's a better group for you. That group is already full. Um, so just just so you know that as well. Um, in Romans 12, 12, kind of a closing out, is our past groups help us live out Romans 12, 12. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be, what? Constant in, if, there, if you guys have any other questions about past groups, we appreciate Pastor Chad and his uh, investment and his ministry with path groups. If you have any other questions, please see him. All right. Guys, have 
a great week. You are dismissed.